Again, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They, do, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is God's word. Amen. So as I mentioned earlier in our introduction uh, to the letter, Romans contains these big, important words that matter to the way we live our lives. Uh, the problem is these big, important words are often uh, lost on us uh, when we read them today, especially if we didn't grow up necessarily in a church. They're the kind of words to which you kind of nod your head, pretend you understand, and then gloss over, right? Because, yeah, I get the gist of what's going on. So we're going to do over the next few months, we're going to take the time to explain, illustrate these words, really share what they, what they mean and why they matter to our lives. And so we're calling this series Big Words, for living. Big words which we're going to try to make simple and illustrate and, and see how they matter for us. And the first big word for living is the word worship. <clears throat> it's only mentioned once in our passage, and yet the entire passage is about worship. We're going to look first at a group of liberating words. Then we're going to look at a group of clarifying words over the next few weeks. But first, we're going to start with a group of scary words. <clears throat> and you might say, well, hey, preacher man, what's so scary about worship? Well, 
Did you hear what Dave said to us just a minute ago? This passage is inherently scary. It is. Uh, and real, real talk for a minute, just to be real with you guys, each time I look at this passage in Romans 1, usually one of two emotions kind of like bubbles to the surface for me. The first is I find it a little off-putting, a little distasteful. I really don't want to revisit that passage. That's sometimes one of the emotions I feel when I look at it. The second emotion I sometimes feel when I get into it is that I experience it as a shock to the system. It's a brutally honest take on how human beings really worship and what that worship can actually do to us and in us. And so hopefully we will receive the latter this morning, that we'll be open to hear what God says. Let's first begin by defining what worship is. It is the continuous outpouring into a chosen or choosing God. I'll explain what I mean. But the continuous outpouring into a chosen or choosing God, I, I, I have to admit, I, I borrowed some of this definition from a uh, former dean of music at Wheaton College named Harold Best. Just want to get that out there. The continuous outpouring into a chosen or choosing God. As for the word outpouring, I could have chosen valuing, prizing, loving, giving, serving, but outpouring suggests a lavishness, a totality of giving of ourselves, a, a lack of measuredness. We don't measure what we give when we worship because we tend to give all of it at any one concentrated time. At the end of Paul's letter, he used this kind of picture. And in his very last letter, at the very end of his very last letter, he used this kind of picture to reflect on a life of worship. And he said this, I am already being poured out as an offering. Is what he varies some of the last words of Paul as he looked back on his life. He says, I am being poured out as an offering. You hear that? It's, it's all he's pouring himself out. It's a, there's a totality of it, but you also hear that worship is continuous. He says, I am being poured out. Even at the end of his life, he recognizes it's still an ongoing process. And you see that in our passage. Look at the verbs in the first verse of our passage. You would expect when God talks about punishment, about wrath, he would talk about future punishment for past disobedience, past mistakes. But instead, you get that wrath is revealed for people because people currently suppress the truth. So it is a continuous thing. Worship isn't something that you and I can just turn on and turn off like a spigot. We, we can't do that. You and I cannot turn it off. We can only trade worship. I can trade the object of my worship, the God of my worship, but I can never stop worshiping. And this passage, Romans chapter 1, describes a, a scary bad trade in worship. And before we get to the scary bad trade, I want to first teach us um, one of the keys to reading uh, what Paul writes in the New Testament, any of Paul's letters. Paul is so ordered and so linear and logical in his writing that it's easier to pick up his main points than any other author in the Bible. And he's made it easy for us. And I think the key is to look for action verbs. That's almost always the anchors, the main points of any time you read the Apostle Paul. So this is kind of a teaching moment I'm getting you here, okay, when you, a Bible study moment. If you want to get Paul's main points, look for the action. Look for the action words. Let me give you an example, okay? Uh, at 20 miles per hour, I race my bike through the intersection when I collide with a vehicle which breaks every bone in my body. 
I'm okay, guys. Don't worry. This is a hypothetical. Some of you are looking at me like, what is Ryan? Are you okay, Ryan? What's No, it's a hypothetical example. Let me say it again. All right, at 20 miles per hour, I race my bike through the intersection when I collide with a vehicle which breaks every bone in my body. Now, if I had to summarize, if you and I had to summarize what happened to me in three words, you would look at the action words, right? You would say, race, collide, break. Race, collide, break. It's a pretty good summary of what happened to me. Look at the first word in our passage this morning. If you look at the first word in our passage, you read, is revealed. Is, is revealed an action verb? It's a passive verb, right? Something is revealed to me, but later on in that verse, you see suppress. Suppress is an active verb, right? As is the word exchange, which is repeated 23, verse 23 and verse 25. As is gave, God gave them up to. That happens three times in our verses, verse 24, verse 26, verse 28. And so this passage describes negatively how most people worship. It's a scary bad trade, and, it, and it's centered around these three verbs. Our strategy in worship, which is to suppress. We're going to talk about that this morning. We're going to talk about our reality in worship, which is to exchange, exchange the gods we worship. And our result in worship is that we're given, gave, we're given what we want. Ultimately, we're given what we want. So our strategy in worship, our reality in worship, our result in worship, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. First, our strategy in worship, which is to suppress. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, the word that probably sticks out here most when I say the, for the wrath of God, I'm going to get to that later. It's a scary word. It sticks out. But for now, we're going to talk about by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. I remember this one time, um, my friend John and I were going over to my other friend Chris's house when I was a kid. My friend Chris had a pool. And he also had an arsenal of what were known as super soakers. Anybody remember these things, super soakers? I'm not sure they sell them today. Do they sell them today? Anyone know? Oh, yeah, they're still around. That technology's not done. I love it. We still have super soakers. That's great. Supercharged water guns. All right? Uh, that's a picture of me when I was a kid. That's not, that's not me. I, um, I, did a little, I did look a little more like that when I lived in the Cayman Islands. I had a little more uh, melanin to my skin, but it's another story. Um, supercharged water guns, you pump them full of air, and pressure caused a powerful stream with which you could douse your friends with water. It was a wonderful thing. My friend Chris's parents were having some work done around the pool, some cement work kind of near the pool. So that day they said, okay, you guys can't use the super soakers today. Um, it'll mess up what we're doing. No super soakers. Well, Chris's mom ran an errand. She was away for a while. We were tempted. We got the super soakers. You can see that happening, right? All right, so uh, we're, we're, we know for a fact that I'm a sinner. We know that already, but that's just c confirming that. Uh, she returned a little later on. So what we did is when she walked through the door, we could hear her coming through the kitchen, walks out the door. We got both hands, immediately pushed all the super soakers we could underneath the water, right? We just grabbed them, kind of pushed them underneath. She came outside, started a conversation with us. We're like, yeah, 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 right? And she couldn't see them. The problem is that with all the air you pump into those bad boys, uh, they like to force their way to the surface, right? So we are contorting our bodies, trying to keep them underneath the surface. This not right decision forces us to work hard to suppress what was really happening. And that is our first strategy in worship, is to keep it all suppressed. 
what we really love. And on its face, suppression is a pretty wise strategy for, uh, because it hides two realities. First of all, suppression hides the reality of God. Let's keep God out of my life. That's how all of us begin life. We want to keep God out of it. We want to keep an authority out of our life. The second reason it's a wise strategy is that we want to keep kind of hidden and suppress the reality that we're pouring our hopes, our sense of meaning, our lives into something more trivial than God. Because it's embarrassing to say we pour ourselves into these things. So Paul says our unrighteousness, the not rightness, if you will, in my choice in God's, compels me to suppress consequences, to hide all the evidence of my un- unwise choice. I want to keep it out of view of others. So oftentimes we say, oh yeah, I was just busy around the house when we were really doom scrolling through social media. Because no one wants to admit that they were spending all that time on their phone doing that, right? We say we were working when we really were just like at our desks, like mindlessly daydreaming about hiking, about gaming, about eating, about whatever it might be. And none of those things are bad things. Social media, yeah, there's social media or gaming or hiking or, or eating, they're not bad things. But we don't want to admit that we pour ourselves into those things, right? That we're spending the bulk of our thought, of our energy, of our look forward to-ness in those things. And so we suppress both God and we suppress the idea that we worship anything at all. And yet we do. Paul here confirms we suppress lesser things out of God's sight because we intuitively suspect that they aren't worthy of our continuous outpouring, giving ourselves to them, living for them, hoping in them. Starting in verse 19, he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Verse 20, his invisible attributes have been clearly perceived. Verse 21, although they knew God. So all the commentators here I read agree that Paul does not mean that people who were born responsible for a relational knowledge with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're not born knowing that Jesus died for their sin. That's not what Paul means by saying, although they knew God. It's more that looking around, when you look around at nature and from life experience, each person is responsible for searching for what's behind all this, all this nature, all this life. There's a sense that there, there must be something more behind this, and we're responsible for finding out what that might be. Does that make sense? So one scholar called this like an unthematic awareness. He gives a helpful illustration. He says, when you're thrown into the den of lions, let's say you're thrown into a den of big cats at a zoo, right? There's an immediate awareness this is a dangerous situation, right? You just get, you get the sense, i got to escape from this. Similarly, when you are thrown into the creative world, You become aware of how finite you are, how small you are, and you have this vague sense that there might be something infinite beyond this. There might be someone infinite beyond what all this is. Does that make sense? At the very least, the knowledge isn't, I should know God, the Father, God, the Son, but a vague sense there's a knowledge of someone behind this. And our strategy in worship is to suppress this vague sense of the divine because we don't want someone controlling our lives, right? That's, that's our first innate sense. I don't want something bigger controlling me because I want to be the biggest of all. And nor do we want to admit that we worship something really small by comparison. So we suppress all the evidence that that's the case. So we might say publicly, um, you know, you have someone say something about what you love. You love, maybe you love to swim. 
Maybe you love to, you love to dance. Maybe you love to read. Like, you really love those things. And what do we often say? Ah, you know, I don't, it's no big deal. Like, like I like it from time to time. We, we, we downplay it, anything we love almost because we don't want to admit we're pouring ourselves into it, into something lesser, into something that's not big and not grand and not infinite. Does that make sense? So our first strategy in worship is to suppress. Our reality in worship is to exchange, to exchange what we worship. And the reality right now is some of you are thinking, wow, Ryan's already on point two. This message can't be that much longer. Some of you are thinking, you're like, okay, probably about halfway through. Not bad so far. You're wondering because you're looking forward to that game, right? You're looking forward to that glass of wine this evening, that outing, that meal, that phone call you're going to receive. And I get it. But when, when, when you struggle to stay in the moment and instead you look forward to something else to make your day, to make your week, your month, or even your year. That something might be, in reality, your ultimate thing. Right? I'm looking forward to that. I'm, I, I want that. If that person loves me and gives me attention, if I make enough money to make me feel secure, right? Um, if my group, my tribe, my party wins and the other loses, that will finally fill me up. That will finally make me whole if, that, if I can look forward and get that. We're always outpouring our attention, our hope, our desire into something or someone. It just depends what it is. We cannot turn off worship. We can only exchange what we worship. Does that make sense? That, that look forward to-ness means that wait a minute, what is it in the present that I'm not enjoying? What am, I, what am I hoping in that will actually fill me up? And that's the reason I can't pay attention. It's not my message. I'm not at fault. I'm a good preacher. It's, it's your fault. All right. Look what verses 22 and 23 say. They say it's a bad trade. By investing my hope, my attention, my looking forward to my child's accomplishments, how I appear to others, my success at work. I am exchanging the glory of the immortal God, the glory of the immortal God for images, right? For images, for shadows, for, for mist, for something that's here right now and gone in an instant. I'm exchanging those things. I'm exchanging a creator for a creature, it says in verse 25. A creature, little c. So our reality in worship is we can exchange, and that's all we do. It's all we can do to change it up. Which leads us to the question, so, so Ryan, can I, can I worship this immortal God and still look forward to and hope in these lesser things that I enjoy? I'm going to get to that in a moment because that's a legitimate question. Can I enjoy that glass of wine? Can I do whatever, right? Let's talk first, though, about our result, the result of worship. Our result in worship is we're given what we ultimately want. We're ultimately given what we want. Earlier I mentioned that what's immediately scary when we read this passage is the word wrath in the opening verse, right? And when you hear the word wrath, we often think of this, this capricious temperamental deity who's ready to strike people down with lightnings or earthquakes, right, from above. That's, 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 that's the idea, wrath. It's those, oh, those Greek gods, right? From mythology, and yet God's just wrath for a continuous outpouring of myself to something that's not him is not a divine temper tantrum. In fact, it's God's settled decision 
to give you exactly what you want the most when it's not him. That is his wrath. That is his punishment. And that's what we read about in verses 24, 26, and 28. God gave them up to impurity. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. God gave them up to a debased mind. And that last one's a play on, on words. If you don't see, if you do not see fit, that God is not fit to worship God, God gives people over to a mind that's not fit. It's a play on words in the Greek there. You don't see fit to worship God, God will give you over to an unfit mind. If you see something else that's a better fit for your outpouring of self, God will give you over to it, but it will never fit. It won't satisfy that deep down thirst. It will end up mastering you. It will end up running your life, and it won't ever fulfill you the way you hope it will, which is exactly why Paul says, you'll be given over to it, not it to you, right? You'll be given up to it, not it to you. Let's revisit our definition for worship here because there was a confusing part of it, a part of may have sent it a little off. The continuous outpouring into a chosen or choosing God. The reason I say chosen or choosing God uh, is because it more closely defines worship for a couple different reasons. First of all, it represents two different tra- uh, traditions of Christianity. We get to choose God for relationship. God chooses us for relationship, right? This is an incredible mystery, the freedom to choose, and yet we're being chosen by God. I don't completely understand it. It's one of the great mysteries that has taken over writings for Christians for centuries. And I have to admit to you, I still, I've had to become comfortable with that mystery. But a chosen and choosing God isn't just for followers of Jesus, it's for every person in the world. We think we are choosing a team to root for, a pleasure to enjoy, a person in whom to delight or to worry, to fret over, lesser things into which we can pour ourselves. We think we, we, we at first choose those things, yet the more we keep choosing it, the less we can unchoose it. What I mean by that is we start to lose our freedom, our agency in choosing it. Now it chooses us. It masters us. It enslaves us, right? That, that we're given up to it not it to us. There's a reason Paul says it that way. We're given up to it. He gave us up to it, not it to us, because we've lost our freedom with it. You see? And so ultimately, the result of worship is God gives us what we want. He gives us what we want. But just know it can master you. It can enslave you. And most of us have known this through experience. This passage accurately, but I have to admit negatively, (laughs) describes the process of worship. So Ryan, where is the good news in this, you might be asking? You you said this church is all about helping people flourish in the good news about Jesus. I've heard nothing but bad news so far. So I want to hold out to us three Jesus-centered good news rhythms or practices that can help us sustain continuous worship to the living God, right? the immortal God the creator God. So here are the three rhythms I want to encourage us towards and, and, and sort of our homework, our take home this morning. Um, Thanksgiving to gauge your worship. Corporate singing to sustain your worship. Confession to exchange your worship. Let's start with the first one. Thanksgiving to gauge your worship. So earlier I asked, can I love, can I worship God, the immortal God, 
but also still enjoy these lesser pleasures of life, these, these other things, my, my kids, etc. Or more accurately, can I still worship God through enjoying these lesser things? And the answer is yes, absolutely. But the key is through the regular practice of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving not only connects us to worshiping God through those lesser things, it's a gauge for it. And another of Paul's letters, he says to a young friend named Timothy, uh, he talks about how all things are created by God. Nothing created by God should be rejected, quote, if it is received with thanksgiving. So the key is, can I receive this with thanksgiving? 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Another place, just to emphasize this, the church is debating whether Jesus' followers can partake in lesser pleasures from their old life still. And Paul says, yes, quote, if I partake in thankfulness, with thankfulness. If I can partake with thankfulness, I can enjoy those old things from my old life. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 30. So let me give you an example, a personal example. My favorite sporting event, to which I give my full attention Every year, the first two days of the college basketball tournament, it's, it's called March Madness, okay? It's called March Madness because people do go mad. They get obsessed. They, they end up worshiping it, quite frankly. But when the first game tips off, I legitimately thank God. I say, Abba Father, thank you for this. I am, I am, I am overwhelmed. I'm with joy. I love it. I'm unapologetic about that. And then I, I can legitimately worship God by thanking Him for these athletes and the beautiful game that they play. All right? That is true. That can be worship, but when I'm now on the fourth game of the day, I'm eight hours in, and I try to thank God, it's a lot harder to thank God when you're at your fourth game in. That makes sense? Yeah. All right, so first glass of wine. Man, thank God for this, this wonderful Merlot or Chardonnay, right? Gra gratitude, right? Can you thank God for the fourth glass or the fourth beer, the fifth beer? It's a lot harder, isn't it? Here, I'm going with this. What about uh, a scoop of chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream? Oh, magnifique. A pint? When you get down to the bottom of a gallon, right? Are you still thanking God? And that's the question here. What about your child? Let's get real your child. You can thank God for your child, but can I thank God every moment if I never let them leave my side, if I can't even let a babysitter watch them? Or you get my point. Thanksgiving acts as a gauge, as an otherwise good thing, become an ultimate thing. If I can still thank God for it, it's in its proper place. I can worship God through that thing. But I really can't, I can, I'm ignoring God, I'm suppressing God, I can't talk to him about it anymore, I can't thank him for it. That's when it's become a problem. Thanksgiving is a discipline that aids our worship, doesn't it? It gauges it. Am I still really worshiping the true God? Here's another way, another rhythm. Corporate singing Corporate singing to sustain your worship. Elsewhere, Paul explains that singing together at the beginning of each week helps sustain our continuous worship of the living God. Colossians 3, verses 16 and 17. So wonderful. It says this. It'll be up here on the screen. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So that's what I'm doing right now, right? Then singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart towards God. That's what we're about to do. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's what we do for the rest of the week. So you see the pattern here. God first speaks to us, then we respond with this outpouring of, sing of singing. And that sort of primes the pump. That singing primes the pump that each, so that each week we might leave this place ready to outpour a life of worship to God in, in word and deed and everything we do and everything we say. 
That's what seeing can do. It primes the pump for us each week. That's the function it plays in our life, and it's wonderful to do together, right? When we sing together, we are, what are we doing? We are unearthing and reminding each other of sometimes suppressed truth, right? During the week, we forget sometimes who God is, the truth of what he's done for us, who we are in Christ, all these wonderful promises and realities. But when we get together, we sing to each other about what's true about God. It bolsters our confidence that, that I'm not alone that I'm not crazy for believing in God, right? God's glory really is worth singing about to the top of our lungs. Nothing else is worth me breaking out into full-throated song with other people, especially while sober, right? There's some people who do that in other places, but who, where else does that happen except for the church or drunk at a karaoke bar, all right? Only here. I want to give us one warning, though, about corporate singing, one, one little warning, and that is the singing itself can become an object of worship. Isn't that weird? The enemy can turn anything into an object of worship that doesn't direct us towards Jesus. Even singing, we exchange out our Savior for the love of just singing it for, for itself. I think that's why it's important that every time we gather to sing, at least some music is unfamiliar to us. Hear that? I might challenge some of you who are really into singing that at least some of the music is unfamiliar to us because when all the music's familiar, the prefer, or preferred music, it conjures up memories, it conjures up nostalgia, it conjures up past praise. And so what we're really doing is worshiping God in the past and we're not worshiping him in the present. We're missing what he wants to do in our lives now. So sometimes when you hear a song, you're like, I don't know this song. Remember how good it is that you don't know it. It forces you to, to think of God and his promises and what he's doing here in the present as well as what he's done in the past. A third rhythm, confession to exchange your worship. Confession to exchange your worship when that's necessary. If you are here this morning and you feel like, Ryan, I, have, I know that I have exchanged the truth about God for a lie, like Paul says, the good news, friend, is this, that Jesus offers a lifetime, a free lifetime exchange policy. A free lifetime exchange policy where you don't have to do anything. You just go and you go to, the, go to the throne room, go to the counter and say, I want Jesus back. And he gives himself to you immediately without any more questions. Your continuous outpouring, say, has been directed to another person who's never loved you enough. A dream that's proved elusive, a lesser pleasure that's left you empty, a work that's left your spirit exhausted. And Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. All you have to do is come straight to him, no questions asked. And one of the practical ways we free ourselves from a lesser God and worshiping that lesser God is to confess that you've been foolish to pursue it. Verses 22 and 23, again, God, I claim to be wise, but I, I was a fool to exchange your glory, your glory for images, shadows, for a creature rather than a creator. When we confess these, this out loud, two things happen. We can hear for ourselves how foolish we've been, but we can also unleash the power of spoken forgiveness into our lives because sometimes we need it. Not just to hear it through God's word, but to hear it out loud. One of the great gifts of the church is that you're surrounded by priests. Here this morning, did you know you're surrounded by priests, even on your row? First Peter 2 says that we're part of a royal priesthood. And priests should remind you that there's immediate, unlimited forgiveness in Jesus Christ. 
That's what priests are there to do. So each Sunday, you may not know this, but your elders gather every Sunday morning to pray. We pray for about 20 church members at a time. It is the most important thing we do as elders, I think, is to lift you up in prayer. What I also do, however, on these mornings is I I print out a little slip of paper with a couple accountability questions on it each week, a couple different ones. We do that because I want to make sure that we're being, as elders, transparent with one another about our lives, but also so each of us gets to hear, you are forgiven because of Jesus. They get to hear that from a human being. And as we close our time of confession, I try always to speak the words of 1 John 1.9. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray together. Father, we want to get our worship right. We want to get the outpouring of our hopes, uh, our look forward to-ness, our, our, what we prize. We want to get that right. We want to be worshiping you, Jesus. Even through our lesser pleasures, we want to worship you in all we do and all that we say. Help us utilize these Jesus-centered rhythms um, in our lives. Father, to, to use... Um, gratitude, Father, to gauge our worship. Corporate singing every Sunday, Father, to sustain our worship, and and confession to help us exchange our worship and to remember, Jesus, that when we've got it wrong, you always have a free lifetime exchange policy. All we have to do is turn back to you, and you give yourself to us again. Thank you. May our lives be an outpouring to you, Jesus. Help us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.